Hi, this is Darren Docterman, one half of the Inglorious Trexperts, and we just want to encourage you to not only listen to the Inglorious Trexperts, but also listen to our sister podcasts, the 430 Movie and The Rebel and the Rogue and The Best Movies Never Made. We have so much for you to listen to on the Electric Surge Network, so give it a listen. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Dockerman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. Yes, we are. I almost forgot about the Inglorious part. Uh, I forgot. <laughs> yes, indeed. We're just Trexperts today. We're not Inglorious. Um, I'm, I'm intimidated because uh, we have our first Oscar winner on the show today. That's uh, I, you know, I don't think we've had any Oscar winners, uh, as far as I'm aware of, uh, unless Rafe Needleman won one <laughs> without telling us. Um, yes, indeed. Okay, well, first, before I tell you who that is... He hasn't got his EGOT yet, but we do have a non-Oscar winner here, Thanks. and that one day he probably will win an Oscar, but he hasn't yet. And of course, that's returning uh, guest and still champion, Ashley Edward Miller. Ashley's here, um, taking a break from his top secret TV series to uh, come and join the Trexperts, the Inglorious Trexperts once no, no, again. No, just the Trexperts today. <laughs> There's nothing inglorious about it. Thank you. Uh, thank you for being back. Uh, you know Ashley is a writer on such uh, movies as Thor and X-Men First Class. He was a writer-producer on shows like Black Sail and lore, but most importantly, he's an inglorious expert. <laughs> so uh, thank you, Ashley, for being back. Now on to our Oscar winner. Okay. I, I'm, 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 I'm shocked. I'm amazed. He, I'm he, shocked to find Oscar winners here. <laughs> shocked. Shocked. And, and, you know, I don't know how he's going to win the Grammy. I could see him winning a Tony. I could see him winning, a, I could see him winning an Emmy. But I, I don't know about the I don't know about the Grammy, but maybe we can help him with that, uh, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Um, visual effects uh, genius, um, a Star Trek scholar, a uh, a man who's who's worked defined our entire childhood. I mean, it was extraordinary, extraordinary guy. He defined um, a generation. Yeah, Darren should just do the trailer. <laughs> um, but uh, not only that, he is the man behind the sci-fi air show, the very, very important restoration of the Starship Enterprise for the Smithsonian. We'll talk about all that and more after we welcome Bill George to the show. Bill George, welcome to Inglorious Trexperts. Thank you so much. I'm really honored to be here. Uh, and since I do listen to the podcast, I know that I'm actually the second Oscar winner. Doug Drexler has one for makeup. Oh, Jesus oh that's right. right. Good going. And hopefully Altman. hopefully he won't come and track you down. Wow. And, oh, my and God. Attack you. You are, see, I can't believe we're getting corrected by our guests. But, the other, <laughs> but you I didn't can. realize that we did those shows in a time vortex. Oh, okay. So we actually do those shows next. Okay. <laughs> You know what? You're absolutely right. You are the second Oscar winner on this show. (laughs) So, um, boy, we're just racking up the Oscars. We're just just riddled with Oscars. I'm I'm so glad you said that because, of course, as we all know, uh, Doug Drexler, a good friend of the show, uh, won uh, for Dick Tracy. um, And uh, Doug has been uh, on the show a couple of times. Remarkable guy. He's currently working on the Orville um, as a conceptual designer. And uh, I'm, so, I'm so glad you said that just because I would hate to give Doug short shrift, um, you know, uh, but uh, he's not a future Emmy winner, winner, winner well, yet. The great thing is that the title of our show is not the Inglorious Oscar Spurts. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. True. Obviously. That's true. <laughs> that's a good point. So, uh, look, I mean, Bill, you have been doing this for a long time. I mean, you know, we talk about seeing 
Star Trek the motion pictures as a kid, but I mean, you got your start sort of building miniatures for Star Trek the motion picture. Uh, can you sort of tell us about, you know, sort of how you fell in love with the genre and this really, I mean, you, you, you've you uh, you've been involved with like every major science fiction franchise. Uh, since you were uh, a wee lad. Since you were a wee lad. Tell us just a little bit about, you know, uh, getting in, you know, getting to the business for you, and this, you know, and sort of your initial love affair with Star Trek. Well, that that's an easy one. Uh, I grew up in a small town in Northern California called Gridley in the late '60s, and uh, just really felt like a lot of people, like I just, I, I needed to belong somewhere else. It wasn't going to happen in this little town, and for some reason, Star Trek. Star Trek struck a chord with me, and I just really enjoyed the the sense of people belonging, and it just had this very optimistic view of the future, and so I gravitated toward that. I find that, like um, sports fans, uh, science fiction fans, they can't just love something. They have to manifest it in some way, Mm -hmm. and for me, it was building models. Uh, Back then, there were some kits. There was the Enterprise and, of course, the the Klingon Battlecruiser, and others came later in the 70s, the Exploration Kit and the the Shuttlecraft. Uh, So I started building those, and then I got to the point where I started building my own models. And uh, that was that was my love, and that's what I really love doing. And you know, my mom used to say, "You know, why are you watching TV? It's it's beautiful outside. You should go outside and play." And when I, later, when I ended up working on Star Trek, I said, "Remember when you used to yeah. like lecture me about?" Well, I was doing research for my further career, so. <laughs> but um, luckily, we moved to San Diego. I was continuing to make models down there. When Star Wars came out, that struck a chord as well. The miniatures were amazing. I uh, started going to science fiction conventions in Los Angeles. They had these big Doug Wright conventions back then mm-hmm. that were just absolutely huge. There I met Greg Jean. I displayed my models. I never asked him for a job. I just talked to him about hmm. techniques and things. And so he understood that I had kind of a grasp on the the process. And then he uh, ended up hiring me for Star Trek The Motion Picture. He was overseeing the sequence of the spacewalk, the V'ger spacewalk that Doug uh, Trumbull had kind of envisioned to replace the memory wall. And it was very much like the Stargate sequence in 2001, uh, opening your eyes, all this crazy slit scan stuff. First person experiential, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I want to stop you for a second before we continue with that story, only because there are probably people listening to the podcast who don't know Greg uh, Jean's legendary place in Star Trek history, who he is, and, um, you know, his, his, you know, basically... A genius uh, miniature builder, uh, uh, and and just if you could just take a second to just explain the significance of you know Greg Jean sort of recognizing your work and uh, you know sort of mentoring you early on, just just for again people who may not know who Greg is. Sure. Well, Greg was one of the proto fans. I think he was a big fan of the show even when it was still on the right. air. In right. fact, I think he actually got to go and tour the sets. And as soon as the show was over, he started collecting um, memorabilia from it. He was fascinated, like we all were, with the props and the models, and so started collecting. And then later, he he got into the industry and became a well-known model maker. I think the thing that he did, he did a a cult film called Flesh Gordon. Mm -hmm. He did the spaceships for that. And somehow that led to him working on Close Encounters of the Third Kind, building the world-famous mothership. The Devil's Tower miniature, lots of landscapes, uh, and so it had a relationship with Doug Trumbull because of that. Um, and it, it, in the future, he would end up working a lot on Next Generation. He was one of the go-to guys. So I guess for the motion picture, Doug was in a uh, little bit of a pickle, needed to get stuff done quickly, and so he called and hired people he knew. 
Great. And so he uh, he asked you to help with the um, the Spock uh, spacewalk sequence. Well, I was hired as a PA. It was highly unionized back then. And so I wasn't supposed to be making models. So during the day, I was driving a pickup around, picking stuff up. And then after hours, he would allow me to work on models and things like that. Right. And so, yeah, they were that was the V'ger interior, mm-hmm. uh, the space lips, the space egg. Uh, there were planets, um, just kind of a whole variety of things that they needed on the stage. The, the little um, hexagonal... Right, the walkway. Thing, the walkway. The walkway. We built a miniature of that that wow. they photographed. Having never worked on a movie before, did you have a sense of that this is not normal, that this is insanity, uh, you know, given the, the schedule that they were under and this mad rush to finish uh, the visual effects and, you know, sort of Trumbull inheriting all this from Bob Abel? And, uh, or was that just something you were just happy to be working on a movie? Oh, I was ecstatic, and I was that's all I wanted to do was work. And so the fact that we were working six, seven days a week and long, long hours uh, didn't didn't matter. I was in heaven. Right. Uh, they would it was and it was crazy for me because I was basically right out of high school. They would pull up the roach coach and they'd say, "Anything you want, just take it off there." And they would buy us dinners. And I'm like, "Oh my gosh, this right. is amazing." <laughs> um, and I remember Bob Short said to me, he goes, don't get used to it. It's all downhill from here. <laughs> <laughs> so I knew something was going on. Uh, but, yeah, it was it was pretty amazing. But, you know, it, we were working in these kind of crappy, cold, nasty warehouses. Mm-hmm. There was nothing glamorous about it. Right. But I was just so happy to be there and seeing what was going on. And I was forbidden from going over to the main facility. We were, I think, on Glencoe, and mm-hmm. they were shooting over at Maxella. And I was told, don't go over there. Don't bother anybody. Uh, but one day, it was right after Fourth of July, I was sent over to pick up some paperwork or something, and I was walking down the hall, and I looked over, and there was the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget; it was so beautiful. It just, it to me, it looked like a yacht. That uh, paint job on that thing—I've never seen anything even close to it. Mm-hmm. And the bridge was off, mm-hmm. and all these wires were hanging out. And that's the only reason I was able to see it because it was off of the stage. I guess over the holiday break. It was left under an air conditioner, and oh, it dripped water, water onto the bridge, which originally was wood, and it it you know warped up. So they had to quickly <laughs> fix <Ironically>. it. <laughs> so they were all upset, but I was super happy. I was like, "Oh my god, it's amazing!" <laughs> wow. <laughs> Don't look at it, Marion. Close your eyes. <laughs> had they? They must have started shooting it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. Let's leave it under an air conditioner. That's a good idea. Wow. And, and we'll get to their other stories. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Nearly as horrifying in the life of the uh, Starship Enterprise, uh, people who, who, who didn't treat it with the, the tender, loving care that it deserved. Um, but they didn't treat her like a lady. They, okay. <laughs> well, that, you so know, I, and I'm a part of that history because one of the very first things I did when I uh, got the job up at ILM, I was hired for Star Trek II. Mm-hmm. And Steve Golly uncrated it and he goes, We need to shoot this with dulling spray. And so there's this speculation that it was repainted. It was never, mm-hmm. ever repainted. We put. Uh, masking over all the windows, all the clear clear plexi windows, and then we just took a big gun and sprayed it with dulling spray because right. shooting it blue screen, we couldn't keep the, the gloss. But it really didn't change the nature of that pearlescent paint that much. Right. I will say that over the years, our cameraman, Pat Sweeney, would, would crash the camera into the model. I mean, that's kind of the danger with motion control. And then we'd have to go in and using floquals try and match it right. as best we could. 
on film, it kind of matched. But if you went up and looked at it, you would see it just did not have that luster that the right. pearlescence does. Yeah, I remember when we when we got the model out for the director's edition, um, I got to look at it and, and spend quality time with it one Saturday morning. Um, <laughs> it's like Lars and the Real Girl. Salute. Yeah. You know what? My, my mind had impure thoughts. Um, but looking at it and seeing the remnants of that paint job, uh, the top of the nacelle still had a lot of the original uh, stuff on it because you almost never shot from that angle, so there was less dulling spray on it. But it was so gorgeous and so unexpected in terms of the shades of the shades of white basically that were on it and it was just so gorgeous and i understand i understand the necessity to take that you know uh, specularity down on the ship because it most people don't realize that blue screen wasn't used on the enterprise in the first film it was yeah. shot with a completely different matte getting technology called front light backlight and it wasn't the same kind of reflectivity of blue spill that you would get uh, using ILM's uh, system. So that's the reason why you guys had to change the uh, the, the again, surface of it. For for those of you who aren't as uh, well versed at home, um, on Star Trek: The Motion Picture, it was set by uh, was the spe- the visual effects after Bob Abel was replaced was a combination of uh, Doug Trumbull and John Dykstra's company working on the, the effects, right. whereas starting with Star Trek II, ILM mm-hmm. took over the visual effects, and I believe it was ILM's first job as an outside vendor, if I'm not mistaken. No, we did Dragon Slayer before oh, okay. that. That's right. I think it was Dragon Slayer. But Dragon Slayer were directed by Friends of George. Right. So it was still in the family. Mm-hmm. This was something that didn't come from anyone when i started at ilm we were doing star trek poltergeist and et right which was just like an amazing we had no idea that all three of those were going to be home runs (laughs) it's amazing it's amazing but part of it too was the cost you know the front light back light you could you could argue that it gives you superior result Sometimes. But it also takes many more passes. Yep. There, there's a lot of problems, as I know you're very aware, with there's motion picture. There's a lot of crunchy, where, crunchy yeah. mats on there. And yeah. on Blade Runner, where we did use front light, back light for the spinners, the only way they could get a mat was to cover the model with white tape, right. which destroyed the model. So you would shoot your beauty pass, cover it with tape, shoot the mat pass, and then on the next one, you'd shoot the mat pass first mm-hmm. and then take the tape off. Wow. And then shoot the beauty pass. It was... Uh, it was tough. Most people don't realize the really difficult task that creating visual effects used to be. I mean, it's still difficult, but not in the same way, not in the same sort of working in the garage kind of uh, gritty, uh, horrific environment and strange things that you need to do just to get the shots. And it was really, you know, flying by the seat of your pants a lot of times. Yeah, and that's the thing that, you know, it, it's great with social media. I, I get to hear what people have to say about my work. You know, right. most of it's good, hopefully. Right. Sure. <laughs> um, but but you also hear their perspective on things. And it's so different than when you're working on a, any kind of production day to day. you got to do stuff to get it done. Yeah. And it's not, oh, we're creating this thing. The you know Some of the models I've worked on, people adore. But when we were making them, it was just a piece of plastic. They're and, just there to get the shot. And like for the merchantman ship, you know that 
I think Nilo told me, okay, you have four days. That was in the beginning of Star Trek Three. Yeah. Right. You have four days to come up with something. So <laughs> I'm not going to be doing an elaborate pattern that I vacuum form. It's all cold molded. Yeah. It's just kit bashing. And then a technique that I used on Blade Runner where you cut up a, a um, paintbrush short and put Bondo on it and stipple, and you get kind of this texture on it. And I know we've also got some criticism that the ILM or the Star Wars look was applied to Star Trek. But, you know, it was was, – we were artists, and that's kind of the way Mm -hmm. we did things, but it was also uh, part of the time. Right, right. So funny you mentioned, like, people don't understand what goes into it. I was so happy. We were driving home from Disneyland the other day, and uh, my son was watching Empire Strikes Back for, like, the gazillionth time in the back. And he said to me, he said, I don't know how they did these special effects. He's 10. How they did these special effects back in, he said, I literally said this, in 1980. Like, how do they do this? I mean, they didn't have any of the technology. And I said, look. You know, I know you've seen these movies a million, million times. I said we have to, you have to sit down and watch the making of Star Wars and watch some of the special features, so you can see. I said what they accomplished with stone knives and bearskins yeah. is incredible. That's and what's this so is remarkable one of the about why it. We are all so big fans of all that time in in history. I was trying to explain, you know, miniatures and stop motion. It's like we were watching Midway the other day, and I said, you know, what's incredible about some of these shots that, you know, aren't from the era are they're miniatures. And he goes, but they're huge. And I said, yes, I know, but they're They're huge miniatures. miniatures. (laughs) (laughs) So I have to, so, you know, you mentioned the transition from Star Trek the motion picture to to Star Trek Mm Two. What was that like for you? Because here, you know, I mean, on Star Trek the motion picture, you know, you, you mentioned you're working as a PA, you're just breaking into the business. Now you're working for ILM, you know, and I mean, the two touchstones of your life, Star Wars, Star Trek, and, yeah. you know, you're up working for, you know, you're working for George, uh, and then, you know, Star Trek Two comes along. You know, what what, what was that that like? And it is so interesting to compare, um, because, of course, Star Trek Two. yes, you could argue, okay, the ships move differently, but we'd never seen the Enterprise, you know, um, get hit by phasers and have actually the hull hit, hit, hit by phasers. And I mean, it's so uh, people who weren't seeing Star Trek II in 1982 can't imagine what it was like to see the Enterprise. You know, even those those shots in the Mutara Nebula are like paintings. And for, uh, those, I mean, <laughs> for those of you listening at home, uh, go back and listen to our episode with Bob Salen talking about working with ILM. Uh, during this beginning time Mm -hmm, mm because it's fascinating and stuff that I'd never heard before. The beginning was a very delicate time, yes. (laughs) Uh, But but yeah, so so tell us about, you know, coming to work for ILM and then uh, what it was like to work on Wrath of Khan. It, well, it was a dream come true. And finally, I was able to get into the union and so I could work in the the daylight. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's like they say, if you want to be a good tennis player, you play with people who are better than you. And just being in the ILM model shop at that time, it was, Lorne Peterson says it was like uh, Florence in the Renaissance. Mm. It really was. There were so few places that did that. And the artists that worked there were amazing. And I was welcomed in and allowed to do the work that I always wanted to do and supported in that. And we as model makers had a uh, much larger contribution to the design of things. Right. That we always had art directors that would guide us, but very often it wasn't like, okay, here's the approved design, here are the blueprints, match this exactly. Uh, like on Star Wars, Joe would give me two or three pieces of artwork and say, well, George likes all of these, come up with something. And so we got to have a bit of input into right. what it looked like. Or even if it was a single drawing, you had to figure out, well, what does the backside look like? Right. And that was really satisfying and, and really exciting. What uh, what 
uh, connection did you have with working out the Reliant? Well, the Reliant was um, one of the the major projects on the show, mm-hmm. and um, Ken Ralston wanted it to be smaller than the Enterprise because it's always this delicate balance for a model, at least back then, of making it big enough that it looks good, but small enough that you can get far back on the motion control camera so right. you can get far enough away. And also lighting it. The bigger it gets, the more lights it takes, um, the longer uh, the exposures, and just all these things add up to it being more expensive. So... Um, if he would have said, let's make it the same scale as the Enterprise, it would have been a lot easier because we could have molded the the engines. But right. that was one of the first things I did was to uh, build, build a, the a scaled-down engine. Right. And those things, talk about challenging. There's they're like really... nothing straight on them. They're very, very kind of <laughs> sculptural. They're, they're misleading. <laughs> but the other thing, and I need to talk to Steve Golly and see if he still has this drawing, but the... I think there was some concern that, well, are people going to be able to tell the difference between – because usually you got the good guy and the bad guy, and it's pretty clear who's who. With this one, they were two Federation ships, and one had the, you know, the antagonist on it. Mm-hmm. Is the audience going to be able to tell? And Mike Miner came up with a design of green and yellow checkerboards oh. as graphics instead of the traditional kind of um, blue and red mm. graphics that we know. Um, ultimately – it didn't end up on the right. ship, but that was definitely one of the designs at some point. Well, that is still my second favorite Starfleet ship next to the Enterprise. And one of the great things after about all it, these years, it's still my second favorite ship next to the Enterprise. One of the great things about it, it it has all the elements that we know from the Enterprise. It has somewhat of a secondary hull, mm-hmm. uh, and it has you know the engines, and it has the main uh, the primary uh, uh, saucer. But it's arranged in such a way that it has a completely different silhouette. And so you can immediately tell what it is. And when you have the Enterprise and, and the Reliant in the same shot, you know that exactly what's going on. It's very And that's predatory. one of the great... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's... It, what What is the truth in the rumor that the first time uh, it was designed, the, uh, the pylons went up? Uh, that's quite possible. We did get blueprints for that ship from mm-hmm. Mike Miner in the art department. So mm-hmm. that probably happened way before it came to ILM. That might be true. Because the, the story is that uh, they sent the blueprints off to Israel where uh, Harv was working on a woman called Golda, and he approved it upside down. (laughs) (laughs) And so his signature was, you know, upside down on the the blueprints because that's the way he he saw it. And he said, oh, this is great. And so uh, that was where confusion happened uh, because uh, no one knew which way it was supposed to face up. Wow. Like th- that suddenly, that blows my mind. I'm like, my God, that sounds so possibly true. That's crazy. That's well, it, a great it, story. Certainly the design expanded the world. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I listened to your podcast on Star Trek Three, and I and I know you have some issues with it, but I was very disappointed you didn't talk about how many new spaceship designs mm. there were in mm. that show. True. Because That's why you're here. The, <laughs> <laughs> the Grissom, you know, sure. super, super cool. You know, smaller ship, yeah. beautiful design. I think Dave Carson designed that. Um, the uh, Excelsior, which sure. became the Enterprise B, and I had uh, some involvement in that. Uh, and the the Klingon bird of, the prey, bird of prey, which I know you guys don't particularly like because it's a little overused. No, which I no, that's, I, uh, I love it in Star what? Trek Three. Right, it just kind of keeps. I don't like scale it in every in other movie show. afterwards. Right, yeah. No, and, and it's funny. I would my answer to that would be I love the design of the ship. Absolutely, and had it been a Romulan ship, I would have loved it. Right. Uh, it's just that it, you know this whole idea of the Klingons using a Romulan ship because Leonard didn't realize, you know, that that's my only issue with it. But in terms of aesthetics, 
uh, it's, in it's, terms of it's, it's amazing. Beautiful, it's a beautiful looking ship. Yeah. The interesting thing about that was it was designed, or at least the design was led by Nilo Rodas, mm-hmm. and Nilo is a very he's definitely a chess player. Right. He's not a football player because, you know, sometimes artists can be one or, or the other. Right. And he's very strategic. And when it came to the Klingon Bird of Prey, he had a little sketch that just basically showed, you know, there's an engine area and a mm-hmm. nose area and some wings. But then he gave me a sketch of this bodybuilder and he said, mm. make it look like this. And right. so he didn't connect all the lines. He he challenged you to do it. Mm. Right. And that got me thinking. And a couple of the major design elements of the ship came out of that, just, just that challenge to me. One of them was I thought, well, you know, so much of the pose is the shoulder. Right. And if I have to hinge it, that volume will go away. And then I started thinking about my grandma's old radio that had one of those fin tuners. Sure. So I thought, well, that's a way. Interlinked if I could, fins. Yeah. If I could figure out a way to make the fins work, then yeah. the volume wouldn't go away. So that was that. Also, then I started thinking, well, he kind of looks like a football player. And then I actually put a chin guard on oh, it. It's on the top yes. rather than the bottom. Right. And if you see, there's also shoulder pads on right. it. And when I started working on that prototype, it was a Romulan ship. Right. In fact, there was a sequence in the film where the Klingons are all, they're like in a circle and they're like, where is he? Where is he? And he he appears, he right? Decloaks in the yeah. right in the middle of him and you think, this guy is total badass. Yeah. And that's why on the prototype, I put in the, the wing the emblem wings, yeah. on the bottom. And luckily that continued right. on. It's, it's fascinating. Because um, it, it's, it's so interesting to hear, you know, people who care about what the final thing looked like, like you and several others, um, that it's nice that you have a say in it along the way, that you're not just, you know, told to do, just do this and shut up. Well, that was back then. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. Um, It was crazy. On every movie, the director would want to redesign the transporter effect. Right. Like, why are we wasting time? That they all want to put their stamp on And it's fun. You know, it's like, oh, let's play. More sparkly, less sparkly. Well, you know, obviously Starfleet had problems with the transporter, and so they constantly changed it all the time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No, Look, it's fascinating because you talk about... um, you know the 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 merchant ship and how you had you know three days to 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 build that. I mean, you know that's something when you're watching the movie you don't think. Obviously, it had three days to cast it apparently too. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's it's it's just really interesting because you know people don't appreciate like the context of all this stuff. Um, in you know which is that and you can't have a super title on the show. It says we only had X amount of money yeah, and right. we only had X amount yeah, of time. Put that in the opening crawl. Yeah. <laughs> Believe me, there are days I wish I could put that on, on my shows. But uh, it's, uh, it's um, you know, so it's so fascinating to hear, you know, after all these years, you know, like the, the, the constraints you're under. And, of course, Star Trek Three, as we talked about, also, you know, even though it had a bigger budget than Star Trek Two, it had a much bigger canvas. So it was really a smaller budget in, in a lot of ways. It was nice to, and I'm sure you guys have experienced this, where you're coming off of a hit. And so the studio is much more like, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Um, Whereas if you were coming off of a show that maybe didn't make so much money, they're a lot more frugal. And so not only did we do a bunch of new ships on Star Trek III, but we redesigned the props. They allowed us to do that. And uh, uh, Phil Norwood, who is an illustrator that worked there, he did the phaser and the communicator and the tricorder. And the Klingon knife. And the Klingon knife, yeah, yeah which, which I built. And there was a danger it wasn't going to get used because I used aluminum. And they're like, we cannot bring this on the set. 
Oh, right. So I think they maybe molded it and made it in rubber, but I was like, what? Well, you know, you can't trust actors. Actors are stupid. And then all the Klingon <laughs> props were uh, are, were kitbashed. They were just um, car bodies, right? You know, from Tyrell kids. And there was a there was a uh, um, an electric shaver uh, uh, pad on the Klingon communicator. Yes, and you know where the other because somebody gave me those. They gave me three of those. One of them ended up there. The other one ended up as the eye on the void conf machine. Nice. You know, I want to, wow. based on what you're saying, again, ask a question. Because I'm, I'm assuming that we have a lot of people in the audience that are a little younger than us that maybe didn't grow up mm. building those model kits as a kid, you know, that to get the testers glue out and the aurora. Mm-hmm. So, so can you sort of explain uh, kit bashing and how that worked for a lot of the miniatures you, you were doing in that era and what, what, that, what that entailed? Yeah, I think they used it. All, I know they used it on 2001, and it was a major component of Star Wars. And uh, kit bashing is basically taking existing model kits and the pieces in them and rearranging them, gluing them together in such a way that it looks like it's some sort of mechanical piece. Uh, very often you would do the basic form, uh, like out of a, a wood form, vacuum form over it, and then add detailing onto the top. If you had to build all those little pieces, it would take a, a, a lot of time. So it was a way of saving money. And, you know, kit bashing wasn't just used for, you know, Battle Beyond the Stars, you know, for, for Roger. We're talking Millennium Falcon. Is yeah, oh, yeah. The, the Battlestar Galactica, the Draconia. I mean, these are all uh, things that were kit bashed. Yeah. Um, and uh, speaking of which, you know, if we have enough time, we got to talk about Space 1999 because we know you're a fan of that as well. I'm always trying to work that onto the show, and he's always shut me down. <laughs> I never shut down Space 1999. <laughs> no, just, Black Hole, yes, yeah. but not Space 1999. I'm, I'm really slutty. I, I love a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you have to make choices, you know? I mean, Star Trek is very optimistic. Star Wars is the most pessimistic thing. All this technology, and we're still shooting at each other. Right. But it's fun. Right, so, right, right. You know, it's fun I, to shoot at each other. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Well, it's, I mean, I know we're a Star Trek podcast, and we should stay focused on Star Trek. But, you know, this was such... This was uh, this era of Star Wars was, you know, just remarkable from the time Star Wars go that Empire and Jedi, you know, and you were, you know, were, you know, in the thick of things a little bit for uh, on 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 Jedi, right? Yeah, I yeah that Jedi was after uh, Wrath of Khan, um, and you know, earlier you mentioned that I'm a genius. I don't I don't feel completely comfortable with that. I'm aligned with geniuses. We at at ILM everything we did we did it as a team, and it was pretty rare that one person would be solely responsible for one model. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it was always a team effort. Don't feel bad. I just no. I don't feel bad because you know you, you could be as modest as you want. <laughs> I perceive you as a genius. I, you know, if you perceived yourself as a genius, that would probably be a, a, a problem. And I, I do look. I hate that when you know people are extolling you and pre- I don't mean you when they press releases they announce something. They say, oh, the visionary, the genius. Yeah. You know, it's like it's a little a much. Pressure. You know, yeah. with anybody, but uh, you know, Einstein was a genius, right? But but. You know, in this field, you know, I consider you, and I, not solely you. There are other people I also yeah, consider geniuses. Sure. So I, I don't think it's it's. Uh, so no, I don't take it the wrong way. No, I was in the right place <laughs> at the right time. I was very, very lucky. I feel very blessed um, that I got to work on these films, and I did. I, 
I love them. I really do. And I cared a lot about the, the models. But the it miniatures. comes through. That, that passion, that love, you know, it comes through that this isn't just a job. This is, you know, something that you've cared about your whole life and you've invested in that. You know, you can see that love and that passion in, in, in your work. Um, I mean, even something, and I don't want to skip ahead, but something like Generations, which, you know, it's no secret I'm not a fan of that movie, but mm-hmm. that, that sequence, uh, the crashing of the Enterprise sequence is, 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 is unbelievable. Yeah, that I mean, was really it's, fun. It's incredible. Something we've always heard about, you know, all the way back to the original series where he says, you know. I don't care if you have to jettison yeah. the, the engine nacelles and, <laughs> and land the land the, the primary hull. I don't care. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing then to finally see that. It was like, this is super, super cool. And it's just like now, you know, it would be done with CGI and you just see, you know, a bazillion things happen. You wouldn't know where to look because they could do anything. Just because you can do a thing does not mean you yeah. should do a thing. And, you know, just to be, I, I know exactly what it would look like today. And it would just be overwhelming, you know, and it, it's just so... You know, I don't use the word perfect for it much in generations, but it's such a perfect scene, you know, uh, the, the way that does. And, and, you know, the saucer crashing through the trees, and it's just it's really re- remarkable. But let's let's go back because, you know, we talked about Star Trek III, um, and then uh, mm-hmm. when you finished Star Trek III, I mean, this was the... the, 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 the we talked the glory days of ILM. Right. I mean, just everything you're working on has become sort of legendary and iconic. And um, what didn't? What's the what, 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 oh, I can tell you right off the top of my head because I watched it the other night. Uh, Caddyshack 2. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But let me tell you a funny story about that. So um, I got the Academy Award uh, with the team for Inner Space right. in 1988. It came out in 87. And it was just – that's not why I got into the industry. I got into the industry because I love spaceships. Right. Um, and it was just this amazing, weird thing. I was 29 years old. It was crazy. And so I'm down here in L.A. and seeing all these stars. This whole thing is happening. And I just can't believe it. The next day, I was back at ILM working on Caddyshack 2. I'm underneath a parallel. We're, like, pulling a uh, root beer can through the, the sod that the uh, gopher has done. And the dirt's going down the back of my neck. And I remember thinking to myself, yeah, back to work. <laughs> you wanted to be in show business. Yeah. Well, God, you got it. <laughs> That's <laughs> And then did you work on Star Trek four after Star Trek three? I didn't. Um, And that that's kind of a funny story, too, because I thought I was so connected. I had some client interaction on Star Trek three and had become associated with the Star Trek property. I thought when Star Trek four comes along, they're going to ask me to supervise the model shop. And they didn't. And I was crushed. Mm. Um, And then a few weeks after that, Nilo asked me to work on this project Interspace. And that's ultimately what I got the uh, Academy Award for. And it was an amazing project to work on. I love that project dearly. So, you know, sometimes life goes a little different than what you expect, and it's actually a very, very good thing. Oscar is the best revenge. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> but before that, I mean, I have to say, I mean, you obviously worked on on Jedi, which is, you mm-hmm. know, regardless again of, of 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 what people think, one of the great miniature shows of of all time. I mean, uh, that I mean, I'll never forget f- seeing that shot for the first time where they're in the Millennium Falcon attacking the Death Star two, and all those ships are coming. I mean, it's like whoa! Yeah. I mean, you know, seeing that as a in, you know, my case, I you know, teenager, it was just like you'd never seen anything like it. Um, t- can you tell us a little bit about just like working on Jedi and you're, you know, working on Star Wars must have been remarkable for you. It, it, it really was. Um, I found out uh, after about two weeks working at ILM, this was back on Wrath of Khan, that Lorne Peterson had a key that was pinned to his board that was uh, the key to the model vault. Mm. 
So the very next night, I'm like, oh, I got to stay late and work on something tonight. And everybody goes <laughs> home. I get the key and I go in and I'm just <laughs> staring at the models. And it was so cool because they had the Luke's X-Wing dressed for when it comes up out of the bog <sighs> oh, on, on Empire. That, and yeah. I'm just like, oh, my God, this is amazing. <laughs> um, <laughs> But um, working on them and building them, it was an amazing experience. I got to interface with Joe Johnson because at that point it had been established that I could do really quick prototypes. Mm. And that was kind of one of the stages. Once a ship was getting toward the end of the design process, they would build a a prototype of it for final approval before it went to being built as a model. So I got in very early on on Jedi and did prototypes for almost all the ships. And then we did videomatic models, too. Right. Um, they would actually shoot them with a video camera and things on wires, uh, both Dennis and Ken. It was very, very kind of cutting-edge technology sure. back then. If you looked at it The now, original animatic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because now everything is pre-vis to, you know, within six inches of, of your life. It's almost like watching the finished movie. They're not playing with toys. They're working with them. <laughs> 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 That's... <laughs> yeah, and how much were you paying them to work at ILM at the time? No. Yeah. <laughs> Um, what, did you have a favorite chip that you did for uh, for Jedi? What was your sort of highlights of your? Um, oh gosh, there are so many. Um, the under construction Death Star was was fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was like a, a quilt. Everybody worked on it when they had some time. They would just come over and work on it. And so by the time it was handed over to me, the basic shell was there. Frank Ordaz had already blocked in kind of the paint on the outside, just in a very mm-hmm. rough form. Um, and it had been crenellated along the edges, but it was very crude. It was an acrylic dome. Um, and then I took the lead of using doing artwork and using acid etched brass for all the fine right. filigree detail. Because you guys had used it on Blade Runner. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, and they, I think they had used it at, at ILM, too, mm. on some previous projects. It's so funny because um, I remember when, you know, they first started releasing the stills and I was like, oh, a second Death Star. Because Al Williamson had done it in the comic strip, too, with um, Grand Moff Tarkin's wife and they had the second Death Star. Grand Moff Tarkin? Yeah, yeah, Grand Moff Tarkin, yeah. And it was like, oh, another Death Star. But it was such a gorgeous, it looks so cool. It did. You know, the funny thing, the first time I saw a photo of the new Death Star was in, I think it was Starlog and they had a Probably, fold out. Yeah. Uh, a preview and I the first thing that came into my mind was did they take all the pieces of the broken Death Star and put it back together (laughs) and they just ran out of parts it kind of makes sense (laughs) I mean you know and then uh, it's just look it ages like a fine wine you know for whatever problems we had it's like you know all that stuff in the interior of the Death Star. That last sequence is—I mean, it's, it's there's so many there's so many things about that movie that are just uh, amazing, and I, I can't even imagine you know what it was like growing up as a Star Wars fan, and then to find yourself you know working on bringing it home, doing the last Star Wars movie. That's right. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty that's is pretty pretty great. And then um, you you found yourself back on Star on Star Trek again. Mm-hmm. With uh, Star Trek Six, yeah. At that point, on Caddyshack too, I had moved. <laughs> why do we have to talk about that awful movie? <laughs> I had moved into the art department. But the funny thing is, it, this is just a little another industry story. So there was a new producer at ILM who had started, and they gave him Caddyshack too. His name was Jim Morris. Jim Morris mm. now runs Pixar, 
So it may not have been the greatest movie, but it was a really it good way to birth. make connections <laughs> with some people who were going to be pretty powerful. Really, and, we, forget Star Trek and Star Wars. Tell us about Caddyshack too. <laughs> what was your favorite part of the Gopher? That's- <laughs> it was the nexus of the the. the- power in the industry for the next 50 years. Caddyshack 2, who knew? But that project was the first time I started working in in the art department as an art director and that led to, because of my history with Star Trek, they would put me on the Star Trek shows, Mm -hmm. um, which was really, really fun. So I had a little more of a say in the design of the shots and and sitting in dailies and going, eh, it looks too dark. (laughs) Was there a sense that after Brand Farron had sort of screwed up Star Trek 5, it was like we're going to show them how it's done with Star Trek Six because again, it was also a, a limited budget. You you guys were really squeezed because you know Paramount yeah. was only spending well, I think twenty five million on on Star Trek Six. I don't know what ILM's budget was, but I mean everything was squeezed on that movie. It, it was challenging. Um, we weren't trying to prove anything. We knew we're awesome. We don't have to, have to prove it. <laughs> but there were a lot of pressures on that. And on that show, um, both Scott Ferrar and I got thrown under the bus with um, Nicholas Meyer. Uh-huh. I don't know if I should tell the story. But, yeah, he was yelling at us because we were trying to tell uh, a story that would take 20 shots in 15. And, uh, yeah, we got thrown under the bus. But, You're allowed to tell but he didn't story. fire us, thankfully. So we were able to. to Everyone's gotten show. yelled at by Nick Meyer at some point. But in their that career. was another thing that I like. There, there are certain things that as a kid, I'm like, I want to see this happen. Mm-hmm. And then I was able to implement them. One of them was a photon torpedo going through the dish uh-huh. of the Enterprise. Yeah, that yeah, was totally yeah. my idea. That's way cool. <laughs> and when I presented it and they go, yeah, that'd be cool. I'm like, this is amazing. <laughs> I mean, you know, I look, I know Darren's not a huge fan of Star Trek 6. I, I really like Star Trek 6 a lot. And for a long time, I liked it almost more than Star Trek 2. But um, wow. the last 10 minutes or 15 minutes of, of that movie, you know, it's, I mean, it's not The Godfather, but it's pretty it's, it's pretty awesome. Uh, the, the whole, um, you know, uh, racing against the clock to, you know, save the peace conference and the, the, the attack on the Enterprise. And even with Christopher Plummer reciting Shakespeare, I mean, that's, ah, a, you know, that's such a, a, a fantastic sort of being stalked by this invisible ship. I mean, it's a great sequence. I mean, I remember when I first was getting into Laserdisc, that was like my go to. I would I must have played the end of Star Trek six a hundred times that and the Imperial Walker sequence and Empire. Those are my two go to's on Laserdisc. <laughs> and I, I think my next door neighbor in the apartment I was living at the time hated me because all they would hear was bum, bum, and then they would hear. <laughs> That's great. Oh my goodness! They, I think they, you know, I remember my house got broken into, and I, the, the way I knew it wasn't my neighbors, they didn't steal my subwoofer. If they had stayed, <laughs> but well, one of the other things that I was able to put into a movie that I always wanted to was uh, Galaxy Quest. Mm. You know, the star, Starfields. <laughs> I'm sure you know. Starfields are a pain in the ass. But there's very specific looks. You know, Star Wars, they right. were always in infinity. They were just a plain. Right. Star Trek, you've got the multi, you know, multi-layers. Multi-particulate, coming. whatever that is. Whatever yeah. it is, it's coming at you. Because they ain't stars, baby. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things that I always was wanted to do was to see the Milky Way. Right. You know, because if you look on end, they're more compressed and you see. Sure. So on Galaxy Quest, I'm like, here's what we're going to do. And once again, like, no one stopped me, so... Thankfully. <laughs> but I used it as a compositional piece. You know, if the protector was on the right-hand side of the screen, it would be over on the left, and we'd tilt right. it just so it looked nice. Oh, that's cool. And I think it's one of those details that not a lot of people pick up on, but I'm really proud of. I I, I want to go deeper into Galaxy Quest because I love Galaxy Quest. Um, where did the design for the protector come from? 
you know, this is one of the things I wanted to talk about with you guys because it, it gave me goosebumps. There were so many overlays of not the movie, but the behind the scenes, making the sure. movie. And one of them was um, the protector was d- designed at ILM, mm-hmm. and it was just like the stories we've heard of Matt Jeffries with all the. Right. Uh, we tried everything. And it was the very first time I've ever had to work with the studio lawyers on a right. design because they were deathly afraid that they were going to get sued by Paramount. Right. Um, but there's the components of the Enterprise, the dish, the nacelles. And so we were just trying every combination. And we came up with something that certainly I think is reminiscent of it, but also unique. It's it's so lovely and so well proportioned. It's It has all the good parts of the Enterprise and... None of the sort of hacky sort of fill-ins, you know, that it, it's it's the best ripoff that isn't a ripoff I've ever seen. <laughs> and an part of that, yeah, well, part of that it has a, it has a, again a great silhouette. Mm-hmm. It has instantly identifiable, and the the shapes are very pleasing, and all the masses are correctly balanced, and it looks like it could fly. And that's that's how the Enterprise is to me. And I, I love it. Did you notice on the bottom are the graphics that are on the uh, secondary hull of, of the Enterprise, the, the you know the plus and the circle sure. and the, yeah that John Goodson put those on there, and you know the story about NTE. No, oh, what, of course. What that stands for? Not the Enterprise. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing I'm really excited to talk about this. The other thing that happened was I was on stage. We had these awful floors that they were constantly polishing because sure. any dust or footprints would show up. And um, so I was standing off to the side, and they were polishing the floors. And I look over, and they're doing the scene where Mathazar comes in and meets the crew for the first time. Right. And in the script, it says he gives them the Thermian salute. And so Dean Pariseau, the director... Uh, Enrico, the the actor, and um, the AD are over there like, well, what, what, what are they going to do? And I'm thinking, I'm, I get goosebumps. I'm like, oh, my God, this is just like when uh, Nimor came up with the, right. the Vulcan salute. Yeah. And I remember Dean Pariso said, what about this? Where he, like, was brushing something off of his shoulder. But they worked on it for, like, five minutes, and they came up with what what is essentially the Mirror Mirror Universe right. one. But I thought, this is just crazy. And no one else knew. I'm the only you know, Star Trek geek that's sitting there going, I can't believe this is happening. Wow. <laughs> I can't believe what's the 30th anniversary of Galaxy? Oh 20th my God. anniversary? Yeah. But it's like it's an anniversary this year because I know Paramount's selling the DVD again, uh, the Blu-ray okay. again for the anniversary. And it's just like, it's amazing to me that nothing has happened with that in a world, I mean, they've you know Amazon developed it as a TV series. I mean, they talked about sequel, but you know, with every piece of IP under the sun being exploited, it's amazing to me that Galaxy Quest is. It's not kind of too late with the Orville. I think they fill the same niche. Kind of, you? kind of. I think I think Orville is directly in the TNG uh, slot. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think there's any crossover with uh, with. Because it doesn't have POS. the self-awareness. It doesn't, you right. know, the fourth, breaking the fourth wall. I mean, I like yeah. Orville. Like, you know, you know, like, okay, it's, and this is a compliment. It's a Star Trek The Next Generation fan film. Right. It, very expensive, in a, and that's not uh, in any way diminishing it. I, I actually really like Orville yeah, quite a bit. Yeah, me too. But, um, 
but with <laughs> Galaxy Quest, there is kind of, the, you know, there's that self-awareness. Well, there's that, we've talked about this before, New Voyages, that great short story mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, uh, D. Kelly, Nimoy, and, and Shatner fi- find themselves aboard the Enterprise. Right. And this is as close as anyone's got to do, uh, you know, adapting that sh- wonderful short story. And the watching watching Galaxy Quest in the theater for the first time, I became emotional mm. when they are shown the ship for the first time. And it's it's a real thing. And it's kind of the same feeling that I have watching Star Trek the Motion Picture. And that's an amazing thing. To get me to react that mm. way is completely uh impossible usually. <laughs> usually he has no emotions whatsoever. <laughs> Darren's a diagnosed sociopath, a malignant narcissist. But should should we should we go to that part uh, of uh, Bill's career where he actually got to touch the creator? creator? Right. Well, yeah. I don't know. Does he want to share that story on air? I think he does. Oh. <laughs> no, no, no. The other on the doll where the creator. <laughs> the other you. story. Yeah, I, 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 and I just want to say before we do that that you know. Whereas we talked in the past about how you could do Star Trek without Spock, I don't know if you can do Galaxy Quest without Alan Rickman. Yeah, you know now he's passed away. I don't know if you can do it without him. Well, it'd have to be very clever and uh, and reverential. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, have he's his so have his spirit then... still there somehow. Yeah, the yeah. casting was so perfect because he was such an amazing actor. Yeah. He could lift his eyebrow from across the stage and you'd feel it. Right, and. Um, Tim Allen was a star, um, and every time he, I, once I was on the bridge, uh, it was actually in Star Trek VI where um, Shatner was saying, "Back off, back off." Every take was like over here, over here. It wasn't the minute polishing to get to the perfect thing. It was all these different, and that's exactly the way Tim Allen was. And I thought, what brilliant casting! They right. kind of have the same sensibility. Yeah. But Shatner knows you're only going to use one take. So rather than try and repeat the same thing, he tries to do it differently. And then you go with the one that, you know, that works, quote unquote. And uh, The plus, one that he intended you to use. <laughs> yeah, well, yes. <laughs> well, I guess the other difference is Tim Allen was a comedian. That's how he yeah. got his start as a stand-up comedian. And, and there was certainly that part of his personality, too. But, you know, Nick Meyer talks about, you know, with Shatner, he liked to tire him out. You know, right. the first one, you know, Shatner <laughs> does one way, then he does the second. And, he did, and then finally, you know, on the last take, he's like exhausted. He's just like, you know, suddenly he's like, right. you know, shields up. And then say, that's yeah. the one I use. Yeah. And, here, and, and here it comes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That, that's a mark of a really good director, you know. Yeah. And I think as people who manage creative people, it's unlocking that, figuring out what is the combination to get the most out yeah. of the artist. Some of them need a lot of attention. Some need to be left alone um, and I think that that's the big challenge with this yeah is, is knowing who needs to love and, yeah. and, and and who doesn't and who just wants to do their thing and uh, well you know. something that needed a lot of love oh, go ahead now, now, now yes. now's your chance <laughs> was the original Enterprise miniature <laughs> from the original series and thank goodness a few years ago you were uh, in a team of people who were charged with bringing back her former beauty Sort of. Sort of. You sort know, of. I'm trying to, you know, boost this up. So <laughs> you sound like Mark A. Altman. <laughs> the genius oh, will restore the Why do you hurt me? Why do you hurt me? We need more geniuses. <laughs> no, it was, a, it was a big project. I think that the most important thing was the Smithsonian finally realized, after many, many years, since 1974, that, that the Enterprise was this really valuable 
um, artifact, mm -hmm. not only in its monetary value, but just what it means to people. Right. And so they made the decision, I guess it was for the 50th uh, anniversary, uh, to restore it. And it was all run through the Smithsonian, the, the restoration, which before it hadn't been. Right. Uh, and there was a tremendous amount of work that was done on the ship before we got there. Uh, it, the secondary hull is built like a barrel. It's right. built out of pieces of wood, and it was starting to crack and fall apart, and it supports these very, very heavy engines. So that needed to be stabilized. Uh, it had been painted, repainted a number of times over the years, so they stripped down the old paint, put a beautiful new paint job on it. Uh, and then what myself... John Goodson and Kim Smith were charged with was the detail paint, mm. which was something that is very, very important. <laughs> yeah. So that's that was our contribution. But the overall project was done through the Smithsonian. And in fact, you were on the steering committee, weren't you? That wasn't me. Oh. It was another Darren <laughs> Dockerman from the Mary Evil Darren Dockerman. Oh, okay. Uh, no, I, I, I wish I had been, but uh, uh, I, I, uh, uh, Andy Probert was on it, uh, uh, Mike Okuda. Uh, was Doug? I think Doug was. Doug Drexler? Yeah. yeah. I think Doug was, yeah. And um, it was Rick Sternbach? Rick Sternbach too? was, yeah. and, uh, and a couple other people. I can't remember. But uh, it was, you know, a wonderful, what is the wonderful history? group. They, they got it in, the, what, 76? It was in a gift shop for a while. Well, they got it earlier well, than that. You know, I remember seeing it when I was a, a kid. Like, the very first time I went to the to the Smithsonian, the Air and Space Museum, it was hanging. Like, it was just up. But it was weirdly placed. Like, it, you kind of had to go past some stuff and up an escalator, and, and there it was. I think it was originally donated, like, 1975. Really? Yes. I think. Yeah, there's photos of it, yeah. like, the, coming out of the crate. But honestly, it was the only thing I wanted to look at. Like, what, oh, Lunar yeah. Lander, whatever. it's the Enterprise. Well, you want to talk about that coming out of the crate, uh, the, the, the Enterprise originally? <laughs> That's, what a great title for this episode. <laughs> coming out of the crate, perfect. <laughs> Mom, I'm coming out of the crate. <laughs> it, it, boy, this project for me was really unique because it was so different from production. And there, there were a little, bit of, uh, a little bit of friction, should we say, between the curators uh, the artists there at the Smithsonian and mm -hmm. these three uh, Cowboys. industry professionals yeah. are coming in like, well, what do you mean we have to go home at three o'clock? We need to stay here till nine right. tonight to get right. this done. Um, we could not go to the bathroom unless we were escorted because we're we're not government employees. So oh. uh, it was a very unique working situation. But they, I was so impressed by how they approached the project and how seriously they took it. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to make sure that... It, Imagine a house that was built in 65, 66, mm -hmm. and had been renovated three or four times over sure. the years. Right. And then you realize that it's this historic building and you want to put it back the way it was. Well, the Brady House. At what, yeah. <laughs> what point do you, do you do season one, season two, season three? The ship changed over, over the three seasons, and then it, it got uh, restored a number of times and changed a number of times over the years. So they made the choice that we are going to restore the Enterprise to the way it looked the last time it was shot for the the TV show, which was The Trouble with Tribbles. Mm. So that was the goal that we had. And that helped us because then we know, okay, well, then all these details are this way because that's the way they were when they shot those shots. Um, the issue of color, of course, was very, very controversial. Photographs lie. They are never going to tell you the exact color right. of something. Mm. Um and so really the, the most accurate thing was they were able to strip down the paint. I think under the 
there's a piece on top that comes off for the screws that hold the the dish onto the dorsal. And under that, you could tell the gray was a little lighter because it wasn't oxidized. So they took all these samples and kind of came up with the color that they believe it was. Um, And then the other thing was the upper part of the primary hull hadn't been restored over the years. So we had to make sure that whatever we did matched to that pretty closely because that over the years has has changed. It's probably gotten a little bit darker, a little more yellow. But it was strange to me. It was a very green color, which doesn't seem like that's the color you'd paint a ship that you're going to be shooting blue right. screen. Is it possible that, that some of the paint had oxidized to green? Um, I don't think so. Hmm. And, well, I mean— Because it's, 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 it's a big puzzle. It's a big puzzle why they would do that, unless the green was to counteract spill from the blue. Yeah, it's possible. But I think they used the best methods they had to to analyze yeah. the color. And what's interesting is because it looks different in so in so many old photographs. Right. When you take photos with your iPhone, it still looks different mm. from from shot to shot. Um, some of the secrets of the Enterprise is behind the nacelle caps. There's this kind of rib detail, right. and on a lot of models, you'll see that painted black or painted dark gray. And Gary Kerr, he said, you know what? I don't think it's painted any different. I think it's the exact same color. And we did a study, and depending on where you are, that thing can look really dark, and it's the same exact color. Mm. So we tried not to put anything on the ship. No, we we didn't put anything on the ship unless we had verification evidence of it, and usually more than once. Like one of the controversial things was the little phaser nipple. Right. And that is, if if you get the right photographs, you see that is definitely there. People didn't see it on TV because it was so small it got lost in right. the blue screen process. And it was it made was, of transparent plastic yeah. that completely disappeared. Transparent aluminum? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do you know he didn't invent that? That's the ticket, laddie. Um, I, I want to elaborate on something you said. Did you say the last time that uh, motion control work was done with the Enterprise was on Trouble with Tribbles in the middle of the second season, that it was never shot again after that? I, I believe that's the case. Wow, that's um, so interesting. Because they would reuse the elements over. Yeah, and over. right. Sure. But the reason it was chosen was because there's that shot, that famous shot, kind of between the two nacelles, yes. where you see them both and approaching K seven. Right. That that was done for that for that sh- uh, show, and the uh, I think it was the right side nacelle had not been detailed. The left side was. It had this indentation and the intercoolers or whatever they are on there. But the other side, they, ha- they hadn't done that, so it was a curved surface. So what they, did in, what they did was they went in and did like a faux painting mm. with all the shading and such. So we did the exact same thing. Oh. So if you, if you see the model, check it out because one side is fully detailed and the other one is just basically trompeloid. Well, well, right now the model is actually in storage That's right. for a couple of years while they uh, redo the, uh, the exhibit hall. Ah, okay. Um, they just took it down at the beginning of October. Oh, I'd like to go down when it's back up. Yeah, I haven't so, seen it. I've never, I've never seen it. Oh, uh, you got to see I've it. I've seen the the ILM model when it was at Foundation right. for the, um, the special director's edition. Um, I want to ask you, because you also talked about, the, you know, obviously photos lie, you know. Yeah. Um, is there anyone alive who shot the model still? Um, obviously, Matt Jeffries is gone. A lot of people, people who who helped build it or who shot it. Is there anyone still uh, around? Um, who is that? Who is it? Who we had at the Cinematheque, Mason, right? Uh, right. The, uh, the gentleman who who is holding the clapperboard. Yeah, yeah. In that mm, Romulan right. Ship. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mace, I kind of looked that up. Is we yeah. had him at the Cinematheque for the 50th. He had great stories. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, were you able to talk to anybody who had firsthand knowledge or, or who, had, who had 
been involved in shooting that, that original know, footage? Uh, no, they they may have, but uh, Gary Kerr was kind of our oracle. Mm-hmm. That guy knows everything about yeah. the model, just crazy. And so we were conferring with her with him on a lot of this stuff. Right, right. And and, and was that footage unearthed as part of the um, the Roddenberry Vault or? Yes. So that's the other thing that uh, a lot of people don't realize is we had access to a lot of stuff that uh, maybe it was somebody who owned it privately or it was something that um, Paramount owns. And they said, you guys can look at this, but you cannot distribute it. Mm -hmm. Um, So we had the advantage. And this is one advantage we had over the last restoration is we have uh, access to a lot more reference stuff, a lot more accurate and high res reference because of the the clout of the Smithsonian be able to get things from these people. Right, right, right. God, it's it's a remarkable project, and I mean, th- again, thank God that people like you were involved with this, uh, you and Mike and, and and everyone else, because, um, you know, left to to people who don't have that expertise and that passion and that love, you know. Well, it's um, an important artifact, not only because it was in a TV show, that is, you know, famous, but because it represented something way bigger. Yes. And it was inspirational for It transcends people, pop culture. Yeah. For yeah. people not only for entertainment's purpose, but for real space journeys. Yes. And it was, you know, it was something that represented our glorious future. And if you let that if you let that die, then you might as well just stop everything right now. Really? Well it makes me think about uh Neil deGrasse Tyson's uh cameo appearance at Starship Smackdown a few years ago. Uh, when uh, you know the the original Enterprise, nobody A, B, C, or D, was uh, was up against whatever it was that it was beating the crap out of that year, and um, Mark invited somebody from the audience to come and just you know throw out arguments. We had no idea this was going to happen, but Neil deGrasse Tyson goes up to the microphone and just gives this amazing, amazing speech it's about on the YouTube. significance. You can look it's it up on YouTube. Absolutely, like look it up on YouTube. It is it's astonishing. Um, I wish I was sober for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to ask you because here we talked you know a lot of love to the original Enterprise model. Um, Obviously, you worked on Generations and some of the subsequent mm-hmm. Star Trek. What what was it like working with the um, the 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 ILM model of uh, the next generation, NCC one seven zero one D, which was a much was a, a much larger miniature? I, I, it I was imagine. it was pretty huge. Yeah, um, it it was a real challenge to build because it was so sculptural. You know, I look at the original series Enterprise as being Art Deco, and mm-hmm. the Enterprise D was Art Nouveau. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's just everything is so organic and curvy and then there were parts that had to come off and so everything had to fit together it was backlit it had lots of windows so a lot of technical challenges to that that model even though ILM built it for the TV series Mm -hmm. um, did you have to do much work in terms of adapting it for the feature films when it came back for was it Generations that Mm -hmm. it was in Uh, it had been on on the air for many many years. I know that Greg Jean built a smaller version right. because the the six foot one was was ungainly for mm-hmm. Image G, uh, and but it it was really old at that point, and uh, we also had added some pencil lines on it because it, it needed some additional oomph in the pa- right. in the panels, um, and it was looking pretty rough. So we went in and completely repainted it for uh, for generations, and uh, was. It is magical for you working on Next Generation as it had been for um, for the original series. I mean, that was your—you grew up on the original series. I imagine that was 
that was really special. But still, I mean, you know, the work you did, obviously, those on on those later Star Trek, you know, is is still, I would think, you know, pretty special. You know, you're still in that universe. You're designing, uh, you know, ships for that universe. Uh, it's 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 an extension of what you grew up on. I would imagine that it was pretty exciting. Well. Eventually, I ended up just absolutely loving Next Generation. But when it was first starting, I had no connection with these characters. I didn't know what it was going to be like. Some of the stuff we saw from Encounter at Farpoint looked a little sketchy. Um, I was always happy to be building a spaceship. But it it wasn't until later that I I was really proud to have been a part of it. It was just a, a job at that point. Yeah. But there may be truth to the rumor that some of the pencil lines on the Cobra head say ugly. That that's possible. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, if we only had more time, you guys could, could talk about Howard the Duck. I know. Oh yeah, you know, for sure. Being I'd love to talk about on Howard our the Duck. on you our sister show, Four Thirty Movie. We did Guilty Pleasures Week, and his pick was Howard the Duck. Yeah. So, ah. um, there's that. Yeah. Cupcake of a Drake and stole my heart. <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, and of course, I, I, I would be remiss if we didn't just talk. Because you know, before we went on air, I talked about what a huge fan I am of Star Tours, and mm. and that was something that you were um, super involved with. I wonder if we can just talk about that really briefly, because we, a few weeks ago we talked about Star Trek: The Experience, sure. uh, and the granddaddy of them all. And it still looks very spry at whatever its spry. current uh, <laughs> current ages uh, um, is is Star Tours. So I, I wonder if maybe you can just talk a little bit about working on on Star Tours because I you know I can't I I remember the first time I went to see it I, I it's one of my highlights every time I go to Disney can't get enough of it so. Well, I started working on uh, the reboot of Star Tours in 2008 and have ended up working a lot with WDI Walt Disney Imagineering uh, since then and. It, it was a project that I thought was interesting mostly because it was in stereo, but I've completely fallen in love with working on theme park rides because it takes the challenges of production, of 2D production, and just takes it in this whole other world where you have to pay attention to so many different mm-hmm. things. It's compressed. It's usually high resolution. It's You've got story to get across. You've got the simulator that's going. You've got the stereo, the, what I call the three S's, and you have to kind of make sure that the, the readouts aren't all going to 10 at the same time, that they have to go up and down so it's got this this complex melody that is really really challenging and fun and then on top of that we've got the branching storyline with star tours where we've got the the uh, opening a detour a transmission and an ending and those can all fit together in different combinations and so that makes it really fun too. he's the spy He's the I'm rebel not the spy. spy. <laughs> you can't prove it. <laughs> yes, we can. I. Um, but the big question we have is how beats. many eagles were there on Moonbase Alpha? There you go. Oh, that okay. finally comes question. back to what's important. <laughs> well, now with 3D printers, you just imagine they had one in the back. Of course, that and must so be. it does. It doesn't matter. They just say, take some moon dust. There was and a lot of 3D then, printing technology in 1999. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Kept secret. Um, that's, that's <laughs> on the moon. Okay, well, you know, you mentioned Space 1999, so I have to say, you know, we've talked about your very illustrious career. You're, some would say genius, you wouldn't. Oh, but, wouldn't. but But um, you, you also have a hobby, which I, I have to bring up because I just think it's amazing. You have the, the sci-fi air show. Sci-fi air show. Yes. Which is a and, wonderful thing to visit. I went there last year and got to walk around and see all the ships. It's amazing. So if you ever want to see what it's like uh, to visit all these beloved ships from the Eagle 
to I, I think you have a shuttlecraft yep. at the Sci-Fi Air Show. Shuttlecraft, yeah. And uh, Jupiter uh, you two. know, it's it's tough to get there, but if you want to find out more, you can go to the URL www.scifiairshow.com. You okay. must you owe it to yourself uh, to 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 uh, visit. Uh, it's very you know it's very hard to uh, to get to the location, but obviously it's, it takes up a lot of space to have all these ships, um, <laughs> you know, and and and. Uh, but in, in in space and time, but uh, you should absolutely check out SciFiAirShow dot com. It's a, a hobby of um, hobby is appropriate, yeah, yeah, yeah. A hobby of, of bills. It is remarkable. It is it is absolutely remarkable. It is is close as you'll ever get uh, uh, to having a chance to spend with these these remarkable ships that we grew up with, uh, that we love, that that you know have uh, fermented our love of. Uh, uh, well, maybe not fermented, Fo- fomented? But, but fomented, maybe. No, it was fermented. It was like a fine oh, we wine. Like you know, drunk. we're drunk on <laughs> our love. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Anyway, the, the point <laughs> being, just the Trek. Go to Sci-Fi Air Show because it is just a really, it is a love letter to everything we love, and and I just think what Bill has done with it is 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 really remarkable, and it's, it's so much fun. We had a chance to talk about it. We were at WonderCon two years ago right. and had a wonderful conversation with yeah. Bill about it, and I just um, I highly I highly recommend. It, so, and when you're done with that, you can read "So Say We All." You know, I highly recommend that. In case yes. if you're not a Galactica fan, you can always check out "50 Year Mission," which is out in paperback in uh, this month. Um, uh, be- uh, wonderful oral history of the making of uh, Star Trek. And unfortunately, I do not do the audio book of Star Trek: The Motion Picture. Uh, Someone else did Why that. Why are you plugging but something you with nothing because, to do with? Because we love Star Trek The Motion Picture. We do. And we want things that are based on Star Trek The Motion Picture to do great business. Yeah, That's okay, why. okay. That's and Fair I think enough. Then I should also announce that I, too, did not do the uh, audio book. I, too, am Spartacus. <laughs> yeah. no, I, 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 I also had nothing all, to do with it. We're all Spartacus in our own way. <laughs> Well, I did. I did want to mention one thing, and that is, there's this weird kind of coming together of a number of people that have been on this show. Luke Mayrand, who mm-hmm. was here a few weeks back, yeah. I worked with on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride oh, over in Shanghai. Shanghai. Amazing director, great guy. Yeah. I know you you've worked with him, uh, and also did the Star Trek experience. Yes. Well, when I started working on Pirates of the Caribbean, I thought, well, I need to start doing some research. research. So I started watching Black Sails, okay. just as kind of like, Fun. okay, I want to see state of the art, what's going on today. Totally fell in love with it and ended up watching the whole thing. So thank you for that. I was so disappointed that at the end of the show, you didn't do a a retelling of Treasure Island. Um, I will tell you that we had very long conversations about that. Um, And uh, nothing consumed more of our time, I think, in breaking those last few episodes than... Um, how are we going to kind of specifically, explicitly kiss Treasure Island, and how do we want to do that? Um, for I mean, the purposes of this conversation, I will tell you that that show was completely landlocked. The ships were landlocked. There was no water anywhere. So, amazing. so many of the things that were accomplished on that show were just these amazing uh, special effects, these amazing visual effects. Um, the show, I think, got nominated every year for yep. an Emmy. Never won because I don't think that people quite appreciated the feat that it had actually been accomplished. But I I love that you loved that show. Oh, it was it was yeah. Thank you. Amazing, beautiful, well acted, great casting. Thank you. Well, and okay writing. 
Yeah. <laughs> it was all right. I had to say, look, there's so much we didn't even get to touch on. We'll have to have Bill back because, uh, I mean, okay. this, in, in your, <laughs> yeah, no, look, that would be great. Because there's, there's so much more to talk about in, in your career, and, and we just really skimmed the surface. And, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm glad you gave a shout-out to, to, to Luke because I think, um, you know, when he showed up, he had no idea what to expect. <laughs> Right. I didn't think I ended up having a great time. You know, at least you came in prepared having listened to the show, so you had an idea of, of, <laughs> of what we'd be putting you through. So, um, you know, really, what a thrill to have Bill here. We're very, very lucky. Such great stories. It's gonna, um, and we're lucky to have uh, you, the genius behind well, Black Sail. You. Uh, <laughs> no. Well, no, now I'm, I'll be humble. The genius was John Steinberg. So, uh, no, I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm being facetious. Yeah. You're no genius. I know. Um, anyway, I You're not a replicant. I'm, I'm, not even, <laughs> I'm not even a Trexpert. I'm just a spurt. Oh. Oh, my oh, God. Okay. Well, yeah, I, I want to thank... Uh, <laughs> well, you don't want to thank me so much anymore. I want to thank Ashley... Uh, <laughs> Our spurt for being uh, uh, back uh, on the show. Of course, a very special thanks to uh, Bill George uh, for joining us today. Uh, thanks for uh, another being here for another episode of Inglorious Trexperts. If you're a fan of the podcast, you may want to check out Electric Surge's other podcasts like the 430 Movie every Friday, Rebel on the Rogue, a Star Wars podcast every Tuesday, and of course, Best Movies Never Made every other Monday. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Very special thank you to uh, Bill Ritter and everyone here at Electric Surge Network. Uh, especially our producer Natalie Miscali. Natalie, how was that? Good episode, huh? Good episode. Yeah, I thought so. I really <laughs> like that one. I'll come back for another one. And of course, uh, Dean Devlin, without whom the show would not be possible. So thank you, everybody here at Electric, and thank you, our audience. Thank you, Darren Doctorman, my inglorious co-host. <laughs> and uh, we'll see you next Saturday for an all new episode. Until then, keep on trekking ingloriously, of course. Shh. Oh, engage. You're listening to the Electric Surge Network.